Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a special episode. I am Dana K. White of aslobcomesclean.com. This is the second episode in the three-part series called Humanizing the Science of Antimicrobials, and this series is sponsored by goodchemistrylivesheer.com. In our first episode called Demystifying Antimicrobials, we talked about what antimicrobials are and how we rely on them every day to keep us healthy and clean, whether it's the disinfectant that we spray on our kitchen counters, the finish we apply to our back porch, or the solutions we use to purify our water. Antimicrobials are at work all around us to ensure harmful microbes don't spread and cause disease or decay. Today, in episode two, we're discussing what is an EPA-registered antimicrobial. How do we know that these products themselves are safe? If we're applying them to our household countertops and tree houses and laundry detergents, shouldn't we be concerned whether these products have been scrutinized? Yes, we should. And fortunately, antimicrobials are regularly and rigorously scrutinized by the U.S. government, your own state and local agencies, and the companies themselves. There is a long and complicated process for an antimicrobial to be considered an EPA-registered product, which means that it's been examined and approved for sale by the Environmental Protection Agency. But it's a very important process that is intended to ensure that antimicrobials on store shelves will do what they say they will and won't make you or your family sick. Today, I will be speaking to Anita Peace, who is the director of the EPA's Antimicrobial Division. Anita will talk with us about the process by which her office regulates this industry and what it means to be a registered product. I'll also be talking to Julie Timberman from the Clorox Company, whose specialty is advising industry through the government registration process. Welcome, Anita Peace. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us your expert perspective on this. I think the perspective that you have is unique, and I'm excited to have people hear that. So tell me a little bit about yourself and and the short version of how you ended up in this particular role with the EPA. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, So I am the director of the Antimicrobial Division in EPA's Office of Pesticide Programs. Uh, I started in EPA in 2004 as a biologist in the Environmental Fate and Effects Division and had a number of different um, leadership management roles in EPA. And I started as the acting director in the Antimicrobials Division in 2018 and have been there ever since. So, you know, been with the agency since 2004 and it's, it's been a great experience. That's great. So you mentioned the word pesticides, and I had actually asked this question before. I said, now, antimicrobials, pesticide, are we talking, when I think pesticide, I think bug spray, you know, that kind of thing. So can you kind of explain how that's part of the, the same division? Absolutely. So the pesticide program, we operate under a statute called the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, or DEPRA. 
And basically, uh, bacteria, fungi, and viruses are all considered as pests. So normally, most people associate pesticides with things that kill weeds in their garden or kill insects. But actually, you know, bacteria and viruses are also considered as pests under that statute. So the Antimicrobials Division um, does regulate the registration and the scientific review of all EPA-registered antimicrobial products. And these include things like disinfectants, sanitizers, sterilizers, things used in hospitals, um, in addition to wood preservatives, anti-fouling paints, um, things that are found in a lot of household products that you use every single day, like the paint on your walls, the carpet under your feet, the clothes you're wearing, all have antimicrobial products in them. Um, So they're found in really a, a wide range of different products. Very interesting. Okay. So let's talk about antimicrobials. What exactly is your office responsible for doing in the world of antimicrobials? Sure. My division is really responsible for the registration and the reevaluation of uh, all antimicrobial pesticides. And so as part of that, we review all the scientific data, um, including the, those data that support human health and ecological risk assessments, Um, We also approve all the regulatory decisions for all new and currently registered antimicrobial pesticides. Okay. So the companies that are creating these products submit them to you and you, one of your primary things is what are the risks to people that you are evaluating that and making sure that these are safe? Absolutely. Yes. Um, That's one of the first things we do is um, the companies are responsible for submitting data to us and the the type of data that they need to submit really depends on the product and how it's used and where it's used. So we evaluate all that information um, to make sure that the products are not only safe for use, but they're also effective because, you know, antimicrobial products are killing things that we can't see. We can't see the bacteria. We can't see the viruses. So unlike the weeds and the insects where you know that they're actually working because you're not seeing them, um, it's it's critically important that the products are efficacious. So we have some very um, robust and rigorous test guidelines where companies are required to submit data to us to prove that the products are efficacious or effective, as well as being safe for both humans, as well as uh, for ecological receptors in the environment. Okay. So can you give me some examples of the kind of scrutiny that you give to antimicrobials and why, how that should make us feel better when we use these products in our home? Sure. I mean, I'll just tell you that the evaluation process for pesticide registration, including antimicrobials, um, is extremely robust and it's data-driven and really consumers should have confidence that EPA registered products are safe and effective for use when they're used according to the product label. It's very important to follow the directions on the product label. All pesticides, including antimicrobial products, must be registered by the agency before they can be sold and distributed in the U.S. They are required to submit uh, data for, for the specific for the product, and that includes efficacy data, again, to make sure that the products are effective. They need to um, provide acute toxicity data, and this is, helps inform the precautionary label uh, information on the label. So if it's, it's an irritant to your skin or eyes, that informs kind of that, that hazard statement on the label. And then they also have to submit product chemistry so we know exactly what's in that particular formulation. Um, we also review the label and also all the claims that are on that label. So the company's required to submit that information to us for review. 
We really want to make sure that the products are safe and effective for use, again, when they're used according to the label directions. And just one more thing I'll, I'll mention is that for all currently registered pesticides, we reevaluate them every 15 years. So every 15 years, even though products already been registered, we will look at that chemical again. We'll make sure that there's no new information that changes our understanding of the science or the risk. And um, we'll make sure that it's still safe for registration and use. Okay. So let's say that a product makes a change. They want to either change their marketing perhaps on what they're saying that the, the what they kill, what viruses kill, they kill all that kind of stuff. Um, do they have to resubmit that or does that just naturally come around in the 15 years or is there a requirement for changes that they make in their products? Yeah, that's a great question. Anytime a company is making any change to to the label, whether they're going to change their formulation slightly or they'd like to add another use site, all those new types of products are reevaluated at the EPA and they would need to submit product specific data on that new formulation or if they're going to add a new use site, um, we would need to make sure that it's still effective and safe on that new use. So all of those types of actions are reevaluated um, as they come in. We, we call those amendments uh, to the label. And uh, that's actually most of what our division gets are those types of changes. Like I said, we don't get a lot of new active ingredients, but there are a lot of slight formulation changes or new uses or new claims for viruses, especially in light of COVID. Um, all that, all those new uses and, um, and new formulations need to be reevaluated. So we don't wait for 15 years to come around. We, re- we review those actions as they come in at the time. Okay. Okay. So when you say an EPA registered product, that means that every antimicrobial product on the shelf at any store in the U.S. needs to have that? Or is it something that just make should make us feel better about the product? Like, is it, are, are there things on the shelves that don't have the EPA registered seal? There probably are products on the shelf that don't have the EPA registered seal. I mean, I think that you know, you should look for that EPA registration number on the product to make sure it's been reviewed. Basically, that gives consumers, like I said, confidence that we've performed a rigorous scientific evaluation of the product. Okay, so tell me a little bit, we've talked some about it, but um, like, what is the, for a brand new product that wants to be registered, what do they do first? What's that process look like? Yeah. Um, so for a brand new product, one that has a new active ingredient in it, um, which we don't typically see a lot of in our division, we typically get maybe one or two of those a year. Normally, it's taking an existing active ingredient and reformulating it. But for a brand new product, brand new active ingredient, typically takes about one to two years to get through our, our process. So for a new active ingredient, um, there's really three steps. The first step is that, that front-end processing piece where um, an action will come in. We have an electronic portal where companies can submit their applications to the EPA and we do that completeness screen first. That's the first step. Once it makes it through that, we do our science review. So we'll evaluate the risk to human health and ecological receptors. um, And that includes evaluating the exposure and also the toxicity of the chemical. Once that risk assessment's complete, so we've evaluated all the data, we'll um, issue a proposed decision and then we'll release both of those documents for public comment. So we'll consider all the public comments um, and in situations where there are risks 
that have been identified, we will mitigate the risk. So usually what that means is we'll tweak the label um, by minimizing exposure. Usually their toxicity is kind of set in stone. There's really not much we can do about that. So it's all about minimizing exposure to human health and the environment. So we might lower the application rate or the amount of chemical that's used in the product still needs to be efficacious. We might uh, require that um, users have some type of personal protective equipment. So they wear a, a mask, a face mask or different types of clothing. So do all antimicrobials, the disinfectants, the wood preservatives, everything goes through that same process? Yep, that's right. Short answer is yes. Um, all <laughs> pesticides, including um, not only antimicrobials, but also biopesticides and some of your more conventional agricultural pesticides go through that exact same process. The only difference is really the data requirements. Is there a difference with like a toilet bowl cleaner that's then going to be flushed into, you know, things as opposed to something that's a surface cleaner? Great question. Um, yes, there is a difference because anything that's going to end up going down the drain and going into a wastewater treatment plant, there will be a different set of data requirements as opposed to something that will not go what, what we call down the drain exposures. Interesting. Okay. So you are thinking through the end life of this product, these chemicals and where they're going to end up and what kind of effect that's going to have on things. Absolutely. I mean, as part of the submission that the companies need to provide data, we, we part of it is that label, right? So we want to know right up front, where do you intend to use this product? How often will it be used? Who could potentially be exposed? So all that is considered at the very beginning of the process. Okay. So let's talk about you personally in your own home, as far as choosing products, what you look for and feeling safe using products in your home, because that, I mean, that's who I'm talking to here. We're the people using the products. So um, as we pick things, I'd love to know your own thought process on how you go about doing that for yourself. Sure. I mean, first of all, I, I want to use a product that's, that has an EPA reg that's been registered by the EPA. Of course. So I do look for the, of course. So I look for that, the EPA registration number. The other thing um, that I think that's really important that a lot of people um, overlook is you really do need to read the label. There's really a lot of important information on the label. And one of the most important pieces of information on the label, especially for antimicrobial products, is for these surface types of disinfectants. The surface needs to remain wet for a specific period of time, and that's called the contact time, and it's on the label. Um, and sometimes, you know, people, they spray the surface disinfectant on their countertop and they wipe it off right away. It's not, it's only effective if it remains wet for the period of the contact time on the label. And that can range anywhere from 10 minutes to like 30 seconds. Well, so... I'm picturing, and I'm not picturing any specific product, but I'm picturing television commercials that don't have 10 minutes you know, for you to show you using the product. Do you guys have any say in the advertising of a product? Yeah, the advertising is a little tricky. Um, a lot of a lot of companies um, market their products, and um, they don't really they don't really. Uh, I guess, provide that information to the consumer in a way that I think is really effective. Because I think most people, I even saw a news clip, you know, when COVID first started about using a disinfectant and the person on the news actually sprayed it and wiped it off right away. And I was like, no, you need to leave it on the counter. So, you know, I think that for us, 
we don't have a lot of control over the over the marketing part of it. If if we see a, a, an egregious misuse, we would typically um, you know involve our office of enforcement and compliance, and you know we would investigate those types of, of misuses. You know there are a lot during COVID. There have been a lot of companies that have been marketing that their products work against COVID. When that we actually have never reviewed data. Um, so again, having that EPA registration number is critical for for products to that actually work against the COVID virus. So I know we talked about safety in your own home. I just want to hear your perspective on, I know some people hear the word chemical and freak out. So how do you feel personally using antimicrobials in the cleaning products in your own home about the safety aspect of that? No, it's a great question. I mean, Based on what the the rigorous process that we go through to evaluate the data and make sure that the products are safe, I feel completely comfortable using these products in my home. I think the key thing is you need to use them according to the product label. So, you know, if a product says wear gloves, then there's a reason why you should be wearing gloves. Again, you know, knowing that the robust process, the, the evaluation process that each of these chemicals go through at the EPA I feel completely comfortable using them. Again, it's it's they are safe and effective if used according to the label. So, again, you know the label really for us that's the law. That's how you're supposed to use the product. We've also been looking at products that have um, long-lasting claims. So, you know these disinfectants typically that we use, you know, once the surface is allowed to remain wet and then wiped off. Uh, if it's get, if virus contacts that surface again, you have to reapply your disinfectant. So some of the products we're looking at now have long-lasting claims. So they're continuously, you know, working against the virus, and you don't need to keep reapplying disinfectant, which is less chemical, which is good. You know, we don't want to overuse disinfectants either. So so those are types of I think shifts that are going on right now um, in our work and, and in the industry. That's great. Thank you so much for all of this information. Is there anything else that you were hoping I was going to ask? Um, no, I think you've asked some great questions. I'll just say that if, if your listeners have any more questions, we do have a mailbox where people can ask questions. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just communicate that now. It's, it's the pesticide questions mailbox. And the email address is pesticidequestions, that's one word, at epa.gov. And so um, you can send any questions you have. And um, really, I appreciate the time and your questions. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. And now I would like to welcome Julie Timberman from the Clorox family to talk about being on the other side of this registration process. Julie, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This is great to have you here. So um, tell us a little about yourself. Sure. Uh, So my name is Julie Timberman. I work for the Clorox company, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. I have a background in science, my degrees in chemistry, and I've been with the Clorox company almost 20 years. Most of that time, my role has been in the regulatory function. So I work with a team that makes sure that The products that Clorox makes are meeting all of the rules and requirements that they're supposed to make and that they're safe for our users to use at home. And that's important to me um, outside of my work life as well, because I'm a mom. I have two kids. I've got twin 12-year-olds. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk about, um, we're talking about the EPA registration 
process for, um, you know, my audience is mostly thinking cleaning products, but I know, uh, we have also talked about preservatives for woods and things like that. So that is your specialty. So from your point of view, how would you describe the overall EPA registration process? Do you consider it to be, Oh, okay. Just check these boxes and you're fine. Or is it complicated? Like, incredibly complicated, somewhere in between. How would you describe that process? I would say managing and supporting the the EPA registration process is not for the weary or the faint of heart. (laughs) Um, It's a very resource intensive piece of work for a company that makes disinfecting cleaning products or that makes these wood preservative products. Um, It takes a lot of work on the company's part. And then it takes a lot of time because there's this process where EPA has to look at your product and all of the supporting data and affirmatively approve that product to be used. And and the review of that takes a long time. So uh, there's a lot of work on the company's part. And then there's a lot of time while we wait for EPA to do that thorough review. And it, it adds up. And it's certainly... It can be straightforward for very routine types of products. But the minute an innovative company wants to do something new, um, it can become complicated very quickly. And it honestly, a lot of times needs a partnership between a company and the EPA to figure out how do we make sure that this proposed product is going to be safe for people to use and that the EPA can be assured that you know it does what it says it, it's going to do. And when it's a new type of product or a brand new type of chemistry that can get pretty complicated. Is there back and forth during the process or do you try to check all of your own personal companies boxes first to make sure that, okay, we're going to predict everything they're going to look for, everything they're going to um, examine. And so we have all that done and then you send it to them and they say no or yes, or do they give you, these are the reasons why these are the things you need to change. That's a good question. So the good news is that there are specific regulations that very clearly map out what we call data requirements. And so you can look in the regulations and essentially kind of think of that as a list of of boxes that do need to be Mm -hmm. checked. And so as a company who's wanting to register a new product, I know up front what I'm going to need to give EPA in order for them to be able to do their review. And and it's pretty clear what's needed. You know, those those rules have been in place for a long time and they're pretty well understood in the industry. Uh, So we do most of it, you know, up front. We kind of know what we're doing. Um, We submit to EPA. Sometimes there needs to be a conversation with EPA before submission, especially if it's one of those more complicated, kind of newer or innovative products that that's a little less straightforward. Um, And so so there's an opportunity. EPA is gracious about giving us some time to work with them before the submission if we've got questions or need some guidance. Um, And then once we submit, we do get feedback. A lot of times it's not until several months into the review by the time EPA's had a chance to go through everything. Okay. And do you have to do this for every iteration of every product? Meaning, you know, if you add a different scent to one of your products or something like that, does it have to go back through this process or is there a a shortened process for something like that? There is a process. I mean, basically, if you think about going to your local 
retailer and looking at that whole shelf of products in the cleaning aisle, you know, anything that's that says disinfecting or has a claim like kills germs on it, those products have gone through this process individually. Now, when we talk about a given product that might be sold with an original scent and a lemon scent, Mm -hmm. um, EPA has definitely looked at both of those formulas. They've looked at and made an independent um, assessment on the, the original fragrance. And they've looked at that lemon fragrance too. You'd be surprised from the moment that our group within Clorox finds out that, you know, consumers now want grapefruit scented wipes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. From the time we kind of figure out that we want to put a new fragrance in a product until the time that that we can generate the right data set, send it to EPA, get it reviewed, get new labels reviewed that have the new scent and the new artwork on it. I mean, it's months. It, You're it, just hoping that people are still into grapefruit, right? You, you really do hope. <laughs> yeah. You got to be pretty sure that it's going to be a lasting fad. That's yeah, for sure. Because it is, it is a time, you know, time intensive process. It's not, we're not able to, to be really nimble with product changes when we're talking about one of these disinfecting products that that is regulated by EPA. Well, and that's for good reason because safety is the top the top issue here. So, you mentioned this a little bit, but give me like an overall view of what steps do you specifically go through before you apply for the EPA registration? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. I will start by saying that the the onus is really on the company to do all the work up front. I, I was under the wrong impression when I started this job. I would have assumed that, you know, if we want to register a product with EPA, that that we would send them the product and that they would do some testing and they would kind of assess it. That's and what that's I not, would assume too. That's not how it works at all. Basically. Really? you know, the company is responsible for generating all of that data up front. Um, EPA doesn't actually receive a sample, but they do receive, they receive a ton of information about that product to review. And that just blew my mind when I, when I started in this role. And I, and I kind of asked myself, well, how, how do they trust Right. What a company provides, and um, there's a program in place that's called Good Laboratory Practices, and it basically um, is part of the regulations, and it's a very prescriptive way of telling co- companies how they have to test, and that's what gives them the ability to trust that what company A is sending in is reliable, and that you know it's the same rules that apply to company B when they do their testing, and that's kind of what honestly, what establishes some trust in the system. It's because everybody's having to test under these same rules. So um, what kind of information do you like submit? You said you don't actually send the products in. So like what what are the things that you that you submit to the agency? I always kind of think about them as falling into five buckets. Um, so the first bucket is the formula. I mean, EPA needs to know exactly what what your product is and what's inside and you know, what chemicals you're using and what concentration those chemicals are. And there's a review that goes around just the formula itself. I will tell you that the chemistries that are called active ingredients in our world, those are the ones that are actually doing the, the germ kill. So EPA cares a lot about the active ingredients, but then everything else in the formula, like those fragrances we were talking about or the solvents or the, you know, the different 
ingredients that are, are there to provide some kind of a cleaning benefit, but not necessarily the ones that are doing the germ kill. Um, EPA cares about those too. And you have to choose chemicals that are on a certain list that EPA has deemed acceptable for use in disinfecting products. And again, there's kind of like this, this bigger picture safety review that's happening. So that's good. That means that when you go to that retailer shelf and you're looking at disinfecting products and making choices, I mean, there's some level of just, you know, feeling good that everything that's in these, in these products has had EPA's eyes on them and has been deemed as safe to be used in these types of products. The second bucket I would say is the product chemistry data. And that kind of goes along with the formula that we talked about, but, you know, EPA is going to need to know what the pH of your product is. Um, If it's a thick product, like what's the viscosity of it? There's certain things that we call product chemistry that's just kind of describing how the how the product behaves. You know, like how long does it last on the shelf? The third bucket is another type of data, and that's toxicity data. You know, we are responsible for understanding what the chemistry in our products. you know, what that means from a toxicity standpoint. And so there are assessments that get done from a toxicity standpoint that give real clear picture to EPA about how this chemistry behaves when it's come into contact with eyes or with skin, or if it's ingested, even if it's accidental, that's the third bucket. The fourth bucket would be which, which the bucket that I find most interesting personally, and this is the, the micro efficacy data. So that's kind of a big term, but what we're really talking about when we say micro efficacy is how does the product kill microorganisms? You know, there are a thousand organisms out there. Occasionally they rear their ugly heads and cause pandemics, uh-huh. you know, like <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 right. um, that's causing the COVID-19 virus. Um, there are literally hundreds of organisms that exist in our world, and some of them have pretty significant public health uh, implications. So a, a lot of companies get into significant amount of virus testing, bacteria testing, fungus testing, And if you look at these products and you see on the labels, you know, kills cold and flu virus, for example, we have to actually run a study against influenza and a study against rhinovirus, which is a cold organism, to show EPA that, yes, in fact, this product does kill cold and flu viruses. Does that third-party lab test those as well? So they they do. Okay. So they've got like this refrigerator filled with all these little vials of different organisms. That freaks me out so much. Yeah. Um, But you tell them, you know, you, you tell them we want this product to be tested against these five viruses and they, they will set the tests up and grow up, grow the viruses up and they'll conduct the studies and let you know, you know, if your product was able to kill those viruses in the amount of time that, that you want to claim on your label. And so each one of those organisms gets a unique test report and a test that's run. And we have to send those reports to EPA so that they can they can review each one of them and agree affirmatively, yes, you've convinced me that this disinfecting spray does kill these five viruses. And therefore, I will let you put that on your label if you want to. So that's okay. the fourth bucket. And then the fifth bucket is really about labeling. So when you look at one of those products on the shelf, believe it or not, EPA has looked at and reviewed every single word on that label. 
your label needs to have first aid information. What happens if you have an accident and you you spill the product or you splash it and it gets into your eye somehow, you know, you have to provide first aid information and tell somebody what to do if if there's an accident with the product. And those are things that you would, you could kind of anticipate that EPA, now that you kind of know what the process is, you can anticipate they care about those things, but they care but about... I, I feel like it's good to know that it's somebody's checking it, you know, because I think, I think sometimes, I mean, obviously a company is making this product because they're a company and this is their business. And so you're like, it's just nice to know that somebody who's not in that business is double checking everything and saying, make sure you have what you need to have on there. Make sure that you're not just telling stories. Yeah, exactly. I guess to to some extent, yes, it absolutely is kind of getting an independent review. um, And somebody is checking us. And the the few times you accidentally miss something, even if it's as simple as a typo, somebody else is checking that and is going to make sure that's fixed so that the label is accurate and correct. What always surprises me is that EPA cares about everything else in the label too, though. They, they care about what your product name is. They really? care about the, uh, oftentimes you'll see what we call use sites, which is just like, you know, you can use this on your toilet. You can use this on your kitchen counter. You can use this on your baby's high chair, like the different places you want to use the product. You have to tell EPA what you want to show on your label and they have to say, yes, that's an appropriate use site for this product. Even claims like marketing claims, even things like um, cuts grease 50% better or something like that, that has nothing to do with the, the microorganisms that we talked about, has nothing to do with safety, but it's more just about a communication of some kind of cleaning benefit. EPA cares about that. They need to review that and approve it. So, so basically what it all boils down to is that every single piece of of text on that label is getting an EPA review and approval. So the the label is kind of the last thing that they look at and have to agree with before they'll approve a product. Well, and when I hear that, it just reminds me that it really actually is important to read the directions. Like it, it really is. I mean, like even when you just said use, and I know we're not necessarily talking about the same product, but you can use this on a toilet or you can use this on your baby's high chair. I mean, like that's the kind of stuff as a mom that we care about, right? Absolutely. And I feel like that's something that this job has trained me to do. Uh-huh. You know, the the EPA review ensures that the product is safe when used as directed, but that when used as directed is important. It means that you, you as a consumer really do need to look at that label and um, just get smart about the product before you, before you start using it. That's my advice. I do want to ask, like, once it's approved, is there continued work on your part as far as working together with the EPA? Is there, you know, do they ever come back and say, well, we've changed our mind about certain ingredients or do you have to to continue to show that we're still making it this way? There is continued work that happens even after you register product. Yes. I feel like for, for most of our products, we are constantly making changes to those. So naturally they're going into the EPA and getting re-reviewed because we were making subtle changes like that fragrance. Mm-hmm. The new fragrances that we were talking about is a good example of that. If we learn something new about chemical X, for example, that's not good. You know, like 
me as a mom, just right. me as a, a habitant person on the on planet Earth. Like, of course, I would want to adjust and not use that anymore or find alternatives. And that works constantly going on. So EPA is driving that. I would say companies and just, you know, like the best companies have stewardship programs in place that that are also kind of on an ongoing basis, reevaluating what's what's in our products, you know, how we support those products, how we register those products. And we're, we're constantly doing some kind of a re-review again, under that goal of really making sure that the products that, that are in the market are safe, um, for people to use and safe for the environment. That's great. Well, thank you. I have really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot today from our conversation. Um, and I, I, I think that it's always interesting to me to just know, the process that things are going through, that when I pick something up and look at it and think, hmm, I wonder how this will work in my home, I can know for sure that it has gone through extensive research and testing and a lot of people checking in on that and making sure that that really happens. So thank you so much. And I think people are going to enjoy hearing this. Great. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to talk with you today. Yeah, it's been fun. I hope you all learned some things in these interviews. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversations with Anita Peace and Julie Timberman, and I'm very appreciative that they took the time to talk with me. Honestly, y'all, over the last few weeks, I might have worked when I was talking to the director of the EPA's antimicrobial division into quite a few random conversations. You can ask my kids. <laughs> but really, knowing how the process works for a product to be registered with the EPA has made me a lot more passionate about reading labels. I was volunteering at a um, COVID vaccination clinic recently. And as we were disinfecting wheelchairs, I was very aware of how we needed to read the labels and pay attention to exactly how long the product was supposed to be wet for it to do what we wanted it to do that's different for me. So I am learning things. I hope these conversations are helping you all as well as you understand more about the products that you're already using in your home. So in a few weeks, we will have the final episode in this series. And in that we will go in depth on how to read a product label. Remember that you can find more about the things we've talked about and all sorts of great information at the series sponsors website, goodchemistrylivesheer.com. Again, that's goodchemistrylivesheer.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.